Peace joined forces to highlight serious, serial, unsolved crimes with a singular aim, uh, identifying and catching criminals. And it's not uncommon for us to have images like these on our screens, a photo fed. And what happens is there are, there are some, as we see from the TV program Crime Watch UK, there are some criminals who are perhaps not the cleverest and uh, will find themselves stealing a van or, or, or stealing money from a cash machine or something like that in full view of the CCTV camera that is pretty much pointing in their face. They're easy to identify because we have a perfect image of them to display. But there are those that, are, that have maybe taken a little bit more care to disguise themselves. There are those who are perhaps not so easily identifiable as you would think. So perhaps, even as you see again on Crime Watch, you have uh, a criminal who has uh, been involved in a crime but has only been identified by one or two features, perhaps even by two or three witnesses. And when they don't have that very clear image of the kind of person they're looking for, based on everyone's descriptions, this is what you get. You get a photo fit. And normally, with that photo fit comes the warning. This person can be very dangerous. Be vigilant then. Uh, be on your guard. And I think what Jude does for us, Jude, the brother of James and half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his little book that is right before the book of Revelation, what he wants to do for us is provide something of a photo fit for us of a false teacher. And again, with that little warning for us to be on our guard and be vigilant against people who are perhaps not so easily identifiable, but who can sneak in rather secretly, even taking up positions of trust. He tells us initially that he would really have liked to have written a song that glories in the kind of gospel and the truth that is revealed about God that we've been singing about in our songs already of those truths unchanged from the dawn of time that tell us about his marvelous work in his coming, his living, his dying, his rising, his ascending to glory, and again, his future coming. But Jude says, I can't. I have to write to you about this pressing issue. So why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude? As I said, it's right before the book of Revelation. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, why don't you turn to the back, find the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. Find your way to chapter 1, and it should be just across the page, or at least over the page. You know why this is important, don't you, to study a book like this and to think through things like this? It's because false teaching and false teachers are still around today. Most of the time they just peddle the same kind of false teaching that has been around for years and years and years. I think it's David Wells who has described these guys as, as basically what you have is you have an exercise bike of false teaching. 
And it's the case that someone gets on it in the first century and cycles away on this and then eventually dies and falls off. In the second century, what happens? Someone else gets on and peddles the same stuff. It's the same stuff we're seeing, history repeating itself, and it's no different in the 21st century. Their books are bestsellers, not so by 10ofthose.com. I am convinced of that. Their sermons are broadcast on TV, and people like us can so easily be deceived by their appearances of godliness. So I know a guy who loves Jesus. Actually, in his city, he is super, super eager to win people to Christ. He loves to hear things that help him to do that. So when hearing that a chap called Brian McLaren had bought out a book which would help him engage with the culture and say, look, we've misunderstood some basic tenets and rules and principles of what Orthodox Christianity is all about And here's really this new kind of Christianity that we need to follow. He gobbled it up like it was the 67th book of the Bible. But that's problematic. Because even the book, a new kind of Christianity, as one author has said, it's neither new nor is it Christian. We can so easily be deceived by these things, even out of a desire to do good, even out of a desire to better engage with our culture and better teach people. That's one reason. The second reason why this is important to study this little book over these two weeks is that we have the problems of pastoral leadership. I think it's all too easy to be driven by instinct and feeling, uh, even as a pastor. And temptations are there all the while. And temptation is strong. Just because you've got reverend in front of your name doesn't make temptation any uh, less strong. The desire for people to like you is strong. The fear of people disliking you is strong. And because of those things, an accumulation of those things, even pastors can be driven into foolish decisions, dropping things from what they, would might, they might normally preach or should preach, or focusing too much on one particular thing. I think Charlotte Chapel has, by God's grace, as we've just been singing in Speak, O Lord, taking its stand on these promises, this great and orthodox uh, doctrine of the faith. But we cannot be presumptuous that our churches, even denominations in our land that once looked strong, that have easily disappeared within two generations, within 50 years, or else, by virtue of their beliefs, consigned themselves to, well, a downward slope. And I think this is why Jude's important. It teaches us how to identify leaders who deviate from the sure foundation of the faith as revealed in Holy Scripture. So today, as we look at Jude 1 to 19, Jude's appeal to us all is to contend, to fight for, to stand up for this faith. And as we read God's word together, shall we pray first and ask for help in understanding it? Our Father, we do thank you that we have in our hands truths unchanged from the dawn of time. Truths that we pray that will echo down through eternity, even through us this day and in this generation. By grace, may we stand on your promises and by faith walk as you walk with us. Speak, Lord, till your church is built as the earth is filled with your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jude, reading from verse 1. Jude, 
a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who only feed themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have ever done in the ungodly way and of the harsh words ungodly Sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in these last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. Amen. This is God's Word.
Well, the key to unlocking this book is found in verse 3. If you look with me at it. I felt I had to write to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And this is point one for us as we look at verses one to three. The faith we must fight for. The faith we must fight for. Now, notice that this is the faith. This is not faith in the, in the way that we often use the word. We often use faith as something of a synonym for belief. Uh, so even in our Galatian series, we've been looking at those who are justified by faith. It talks about believing. But the word faith in this context isn't referring to uh, belief as such. It's referring to a body of doctrine, a teaching, a set of beliefs concerning God and the gospel. And the content of this faith, the faith that Jude is presenting uh, and reminding the churches of, is God's revealed truth. It's all that God has revealed about himself to declare as the God of truth, this is true, this is what you should follow, this is what should be believed. Now, truth is something that has very much been under attack uh, in our time. Uh, in many respects, it's been under attack for, for centuries and centuries, but it's up for grabs, certainly, in these days. It's almost the kind of mentality where it's, you tell me your truth and I'll tell you mine. It's been quite commonplace in recent years. And what's behind that is, is an understanding that actually there is no absolute truth, no definitive truth that must be held to. No, truth is contingent and relative to your own experience, maybe your own cultural uh, situation. Uh, but God has said that he has established his truth in the Bible as high as his name. That he calls himself in the scripture the God of truth. That his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in John chapter 1, came as, came as the bearer of grace for our sin and truth to counter lies. Even declaring himself in John chapter 8 and verse 33, that if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then there's this direct correlation with that teaching and the truth where he says, then you will what? Know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So the truth in Jude is known as the faith. And even if you go down to verse 17, you get a little bit of a better understanding what it says as part of Jude's appeal towards the end of the letter. Remember, remind yourself of this. This is really, really important for you to grasp. Remember what it says. Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. So in other words, this faith this truth that comes from the God of truth who sent his son who is the way, the truth and the life into this world to declare that there is a truth by which we can be free has been passed on to the apostles and it is to them, it is to his teaching that we must pay very careful attention. Now that's quite a thing for Jude to say. We believe Jude was written quite late on in terms of the order of the letters of the New Testament but the faith, it seems that he is Appealing for the churches to contend for is something that has been established and set in place even at such an early time. Even though at this point the teaching of the apostles hadn't actually been garnered together and placed into the Bible as we have it yet still. By the time of Jude's writing, these foundational truths of the New Testament 
a body of doctrine concerning the revealed truth of the Lord was not only being taught, but even upheld in churches as the gospel spread. And this faith is not like the fashion industry. We know what the fashion industry is like, don't we? We see season after season, year after year of changing fashions. It, it used to be cool to wear baggy jeans. Now it's cool to wear skinny jeans. It used to be cool to have long hair and a center parting when I was younger. How funny is that? Now it's cool to have spiky hair, especially at the front. <laughs> Fashions change. Some of you have got a little catching up to do. Uh, <laughs> fashions change. God's truth does not. Truth's unchanged from the dawn of time. You know, fundamentally, God has given us what he has always been, the revealed truth about his grace and his love, his mercy, and given it to us to understand it's not to be changed, it's not to be tampered with, it's given to us, as Jude says, the faith once for all, once for all, given to us, entrusted to the saints. And here's where we see the second little thing in here, the carrier of this gospel. The carrier of this faith is the church. It's God's chosen people. And look at this. Isn't it amazing the way the, way the church is described here in verse 1? To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great picture? That we are the recipients, according to God's wonderful grace, of the gift of knowing him. Liam, come to know me. Andy, come to know me. Jane, come to know me. And to know that we are the recipients of his affection. And that we benefit from such safety and security as we are kept by Jesus, so secure is his blood that was shed for us. What a wonderful picture of the church. What a wonderful thing to reflect on. Take time to think on that. Called, loved, kept. That's what we are if we have put our faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful picture. And what about our experience? Well, it should be one of increasing mercy, peace, and love as the people of God. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance is, is Jude's prayer. That should be our experience. But here in particular, we see our role as we are those who are carriers of this faith, this faith that was once for all entrusted, as it says in verse 3, to the saints, that is, to the church, to those who believe, to those who are set apart. The church, you see, is God's chosen vehicle for carrying this truth, particularly for carrying this truth to the nations. But false teaching, those who seek to change this content and play around with it, no matter how good their intentions, it's like removing spark plugs from your car. It won't do what it's supposed to do. It won't even start. False teaching in that sense affects the vehicle that God has ordained to carry this gospel to the nations. It won't work. False teaching also dilutes the gospel, and a watered-down version of that will save no one. 
It won't be tasted to anyone. Sometimes when I'm maybe having a little drink of orange juice at home, uh, my little boy, Will, will be desperate uh, for a drink of that. But it's far too sweet for him. It's far too, uh, far too much sugar in it. And so sometimes we just water it. We give him a little bit, but we water it down. And I'll give it a wee taste just to check and see what it's like in terms of its consistency. And it's, it's gross. It's terrible. Like, and he's like, mmm. He loves it. But, but it tastes horrible. It's so diluted. It's not even worth drinking. And the, the effect of false teaching on the faith will do that to the gospel. It'll make it very unpalatable. Actually, when people are trying to, they think that by making these changes, they make it a little bit more palatable. Actually, you just dilute it into tastelessness. I think one other thing that we're called to be as the carrier of this gospel, the church, is that we're called to reflect God's character. But what false teaching does is it completely distorts the reflection of Christ that is seen in and through local churches. I was down at Canty Bay yesterday, and the bay was beautiful. I I mean, the water was just so, so still to the point where if you stood in the water and looked down, you could see your reflection very, very simply. Until someone throws a little stone in the water and then it ripples and so on. Well, that false teaching is like that stone going into that water. It creates the ripple. It distorts the reflected image. And that's exactly what false teaching does in our nation and across the world. You see, we have reason for reason, reason after reason after reason for being vigilant and on our watch, on our guard against the kind of teaching no matter what the motive is that affects or changes or distorts the faith And how it completely impedes God's chosen people as the carrier of this gospel. And it doesn't matter how much we sing about this glorious gospel or rejoice in this glorious gospel. If we don't get the gospel right, then we're not gonna, it's not going to do what, it's, what it should do. We will only deceive people into hell. That's why we must fight for this faith. Because God's authoritative truth has been given to the church once and for all. Not just to proclaim, but to protect. And not just to present, but to preserve. And it's right, even as we did earlier, to be constantly in prayer for your church leaders, for your elders. Who seek to uphold the truth. And show that they love the truth, as well as refuting error. But at the same time, the interesting thing in Jude is this call to contend for the faith is not just given to the leaders of the churches here, is it? No, it's given to the church. It's given to us all. We are all responsible for this preservation and protection of the gospel, for this watchfulness for those who may be false teachers. That is why we are called to, as it says in verse 3, as we see about the fight, to contend. The word is epagonitzomai. The word agonitzomai has the word agony in it, so it's, it's about to agonize in this effort. To contend with those who change the content through struggle. To fight for this. It's blood, sweat, and tears for the sake of that which Christ has spilled his blood for. To stand up truly for what is right and for what is true. And again, that's not an alien concept for us. People do that in our world, in our society, in many different respects. 
whether it's even people who are campaigning outside of Asda stores and things like that in relation to the price of milk. People know what it's like to stand up for what you believe is right. Because currently they believe it's wrong for the price of milk and the amount that goes to the farmers and so on. It's not an alien concept for us. But we are called to contend, to struggle with energy, with effort, blood, sweat and tears, to make sure that we who have become, by God's calling, by his love and by his peace, recipients of this gospel, to make sure that we protect it and preserve it and guard it so that we may pass it on in its purest form. Contending and contending against those who change the content of the faith. That's verse 4, isn't it? Verse 4, Jude really exposes these false teachers and then in the following verses goes on to explain verse 4 really in a bit more depth. The word godless or ungodly is a very, very common word in this book. Certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, in other words, there's nothing new here, have secretly slipped in like stealth bombers under the radar. Their presence is very, very dangerous. Slipped in among you, they are godless men who, two things, change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. With those things in mind, let's move to the second point where we see more of this photo fit of a false teacher from verse 5 and onwards. Uh, There are a couple of things that we can see in here uh, from verses 5 to 10 in particular that we see these, these false teachers are often driven by instinct. And even verse 10 is quite important. These men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct, in other words, not because they've received some revealed truth. What they have believed, uh, what they understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Instinct's a very positive word for us in our in our world today. If you want to justify an action, a behavior, a thought, call it instinctive, call it natural, uh, and who can argue against you? In fact, if you do argue against people who express their thoughts and beliefs in that frame, then you're basically labeled as intolerant or bigoted or something like that. I think this is even one of the arguments behind the gay marriage debate, isn't it? Many today argue that whatever you feel is If it's innate or it feels natural for you, then it must be right. In fact, it must surely be wrong to suppress those things. That's what some people say. Even our government is going beyond that. They're even trying to advocate the rightness of what other people feel, saying it is the right thing to do, as Nicola Sturgeon, our first deputy first minister, said this week. Well, I beg to disagree. One writer has said, man prefers to believe what he prefers to be true. How true that is in our day and age. In other words, we want to engage in some behavior, live in a certain way. We will, because of our sinful nature, find a way to rationalize it and call it, even call it, good or true or right. We walk around believing our conscience is clear and our actions are good when in fact our conscience is seared and hard and our actions are evil. 
I mean, how many of us, many of us even as Christians, can walk around and we can be engaged in some activity and we think that we're doing good and we think that we might not be sinning in a particular area and yet at a later stage we've come to realize, whoa, actually I've just discovered that that's not true or that is wrong and I shouldn't be doing that kind of thing. I have, I'm sure we all have in some respects. But what we have here is, again, in this fight against this thing called objective truth, there are those in verse 10 who just speak abusively against what they do not understand. That's Jude's diagnosis. These people are led not by truth, but by instinct. It's what feels right. Oh, it doesn't feel right to hold on to this particular doctrine because it just makes the gospel just that little bit hard to swallow, for example. You know that thing about hell? Well, that thing about God's wrath, yeah, I'm not sure we should really hold on to things like that. It doesn't really display the God of love that I see in the Bible. There are arguments that, that kind of go like that, where people, by virtue of their feelings, can change their views. But what does a life led by feeling and instinct lead to? I think that's a question that Jude begs us to ask. He basically gives us three examples of what it leads to in verses 5 to 7. First of all, it leads to unbelief, like Israel. Those who had crossed over the sea, who rebelled against God, and who did not believe that what God was saying was true, that they could go over and they could take the promised land. Well, they fell in the desert as a mark of God's judgment. Or even angels, not only unbelief like Israel, but Rebellion, like angels who rebelled against God's authority in the spiritual realm. Or the immorality that we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that descent into immorality that you can read about in Genesis. And I think this is, these are the kind of things that Jude talks about when he says in verse 4 that false teachers are changing the grace of God into a license for immorality. Because if you do not believe that there is one who has held out the truth for us, to obey and to believe. If we do rebel against not only that truth, but the giver of that truth and his authority, then what would we expect but a descent into immorality? They may, people may claim to believe in God, maybe as these false teachers do, but God's unchanging truth declares that ungodly lives stem from a denial of God's truth. And that those who deny God's truth and God as the truth giver will be judged. So they're driven by instinct, not truth. They are also driven by greed, not care. We read earlier, didn't we, from Ezekiel. This is an age-old problem of those in pastoral leadership, those who are entrusted to shepherd a flock, to care for them. And what wonderful pictures we have of, of those who are... Uh, of what the shepherds were supposed to do. You're the ones that are stuffing your faces. That's my paraphrase, by the way. Uh, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals. You're feasting. You're enjoying this. Perks of the job, you might say. But you've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick, as you should have done. You've not brought back the strays or even searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for wild animals. No one searched for them. No one looked for them. It's supposed to be the role of the shepherd leaders, of those in eldership in our churches who are to 
care for the sheep and lead the sheep and guide the, the, the sheep. But we have every indication here that the photo fit of a false teacher that Judah's offering us is that of a false, uh, is that of a leader who has not done these things like those in Ezekiel. Shepherds, as it says in verse 12, look with me, shepherds who only feed themselves. They are blemishes at your love feasts, as it says at the start of the verse, eating with you without the slightest qualm. They don't care. They have no worries at all about eating with you. These love feasts, by the way, are just like they got together and they just had great celebrations, would have a feast together, and as part of that, they would share in the Lord's Supper together. These guys can do that with you without any kind of conviction in their hearts or against their conscience. They think this is fine. They think they can feed themselves and starve the sheep and that all of that is fine. Well, what we have even in verse 11 is an example of those who do that kind of thing for their own sake. So you have Cain knowingly disobeying God. God had warned him, remember, sin is crouching at your door. You know, watch out, in other words. But he killed his brother nonetheless. And Balaam, who was just out for personal profit. And Korah, who conducted in the book of Numbers against Moses, a full-on revolt out of a desire to have people follow him because he rejected the truth that Moses was declaring on behalf of God and he rejected Moses as the authority figure that God had placed over them. And these false teachers in this photo fit are exposed truly for what they are as you see as verse 12 continues. They are hidden reefs. Hidden reefs. We saw last year the dangers of getting too close to rocks when the Concordia ran aground. We hear of boats being shipwrecked and so on. The reason why we have lighthouses is because there are, there are dangers with drawing too close to rocks in the same way there are dangers with growing too, cro- too close to these false teachers. It's perilous. God's word is here acting for us by providing this photo of it as something of a lighthouse for us, warning us, get away from these people. Waterless clouds, this is what they're like, and fruitless trees, promising much but delivering nothing. In other words, starving you to death. They're like wild waves. So the sea in the Bible, throughout the Bible, is often depicted as a place of chaos, and surging waters are often seen as being symbolic as a lack of self-control. And just as the scum of the sea sticks on the shores and on the beaches, so actually what Jude is telling us here is that the scum of the false teachers will show itself. They will show up their true nature. They'll show what they're made of. You know, their constituents will be deposited somewhere in a way in which you will know what they are and what they look like. Ultimately, they are wandering stars. People who are guided by them will just wander aimlessly. So that's something of a photo fit for us of what a false teacher looks like, driven by instinct, not truth, which will ultimately lead to an unbelief, rebellion, immorality, or driven by greed, not care, uh, working against those 
uh, we should be against those who change this content and those who deny the Lord. What sentence then awaits those false teachers? Punishment. It's crystal clear in various places. In verses 5 to 7, you have with each of those examples destruction mentioned in some form. In verse 11, you have the cry, woe to them because of the way in which they have taken. And verses 14 to 16 just talks so often about the ungodly being judged. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Punishment is very real for anyone who forsakes the truth and lives apart from the faith. That's why in this book, Jude, as, he, as we look at next week, not only presents for us this week this photo fit of a false teacher, but encourages us to think through the importance of persevering and keeping on in the faith and how we preserve and protect this glorious truth that we have from God in his word. And this warning of judgment is supposed to be something that acts as something of a deterrent. We know what that's like in various realms. In society, the, 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 the prospect of the punishment of prison is supposed to ward people off committing criminal acts. In family life, the prospect of punishment of children in some form is supposed to ward them away from disobedience. I almost said criminality there. But, uh, even in sports, the prospect of the punishment of uh, the red card is supposed to encourage people away from unsportsmanlike conduct and to help them think about what it is to compete according to the rules of the game. How does that sit with us? Well, probably in the same way that it sits in that natural realm. Our prisons are still full. Our children are still disobedient. And there are plenty of people that get sent off every week in football. There are some who will just refuse. We are those who, according to God's word, have a sinful nature. We have a tendency and a leaning towards sin and an enjoyment of it. And we are called with the threat of punishment, the warning of punishment, to stay away from false teachers and to stay away from their false teaching, that we might truly have life, that we may truly live in accordance with his word, that we may keep on until the end and see his face and be in his presence forever. The prospect of judgment should make us vigilant in watching out for false teachers and should make us very, very careful in thinking through how we handle the word and how we speak to one another. In every respect, doctrine impacts life. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, 
I wonder how this sounds to you. I'm not trying to prepare a people necessarily for combat here. I hope you understand. I think to acknowledge that the church needs to fight for truth is not to suggest somehow that the gospel is a declaration of war. It's, it's not, actually. It's a manifesto of peace. It's always and every time a plea for reconciliation with God. And actually, it's truer to say that those who are not reconciled to God are the ones who are at war. That is at war with him all the time. And actually, the gospel that I'm talking about and the preservation of this truth that is so central to our life as a church that we are called to carry is, in fact, the only way to end that war with him. And the way you do that is by believing in him and receiving this truth for yourself. Not as some kind of subjective thing that depends on experience, but actually that that God, who does exist, has given his son, really, into this world 2,000 years ago to live a sinless life the kind of life that would qualify him to be your substitute as he died on the cross, taking your sins upon himself. And who, raised, who rose again to life three days later and commissioned that early church to take this truth of the gospel and spread it so that all who believe in him might have life in his name. So my encouragement for you is to confess your sins. Uh, confess a happy independence of God and turn to him and acknowledge your dependence of him. And not to heed the lies of the evil one. And if we are Christians here today, we must contend for this faith. As I've mentioned earlier, the purity of the gospel and our effectiveness as a church depends on it. We shouldn't be deceived. Bad theology dishonors God and hurts his people and others. And even though it may look like some churches around might sever that root of truth or may, yeah, let's dispense of the reality of an eternal hell. Let's dispense of the reality of God's judgment. In fact, let's just forget about the imputation of Christ's righteousness to those who believe. They may flourish for a season, but eventually will turn into something besides a Christian church. And as I said earlier, by God's grace, we have stood on these promises of God and this revealed truth of God for over 200 years now. Let us not be presumptive, but let us press on with due vigilance and with great joy and happiness. Stand firm on the doctrine that is once for all delivered to the saints and when necessary, contend for it. And bring the charge against those who teach falsely, as Paul said to Timothy, with love. That's what we're called to do. Contend for the faith in your own heart. Contend for it in the life of your family. Contend for it in the church family. Contend for it in, a, in the wider church. And contend for it in our city and in our world. That many more may sing his praises.
and rejoice in his truth. Let's pray together.